My buddy Andrew, he was actually playing the bass this morning. He sent me a Christmas story he came across this week. He read about it, and it was about a young boy from a, a locally uh, poor family who had asked his mom for a new bike, and his mother replied, well, I can't afford one of those, honey. You're, you're going to have to, she was just trying to come up with something to give him some hope. She said, you're going to have to ask the baby Jesus. And so the little boy went back up to his room and got a stack of note cards out, and he began writing, dear baby Jesus, I've been good all year. Can you please give me a bike for Christmas? Then he looked about and thought about it for a little bit, and he said, well, I know that's not true, and he's probably going to know. And so he, he, he crossed it all out and got a new card, and he wrote, Dear Baby Jesus, he said, I've been good for the past week. Can you, can you please give me a bike for Christmas? And then, you know, maybe con- convicted by the Holy Spirit, as young as he was, again, he thought to himself, well, that really wasn't true either. And so he tried again, got on another note card, Dear Baby Jesus, if you give me a bike, I promise I'll be good next week. But then he realized it was Monday, and he'd already been punished three times. And so out of just frustration and, 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 and being really upset, he decides, forget the whole thing, he goes out for a walk. And as he's walking by his church, he sees the nativity scene sitting out on the front lawn. Suddenly he has this great idea. He, he goes running full speed towards the nativity set, and, and as he goes by, he scoops Mary up in his arms as fast as he can, and he hurries her off to his room, whereupon he pulls out another uh, little card, and he goes, Dear baby Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... <laughs> you might want to give me a bike. We are in week three of um, this prescribed season of of pause and reflection and preparation as as we are looking forward, looking backwards and reflecting on Jesus' first coming and forward to his second. And we're doing that by looking, um, reflecting with the mother of Jesus, Mary, trying to join in with her on what Luke recounts her doing on several occasions, taking the events of that first Christmas and the life of her son Jesus and treasuring them up in her heart so that she might have at some point in the future time to ponder and reflect on them. If I were going to put it in modern day language, I would say that Mary was trying to make sense of it all. If you live long enough, you get yourself to a place like that too. Just trying to make sense of it all. So we've chosen to do our pondering in kind of a, almost a cheating fashion. We are working our way backwards in Mary's life. In one sense, trying to figure out what God was up to by looking in the rearview mirror. Because for Mary, like many of us, what God is up to in our lives isn't oftentimes seen clearly in the moment, but really deciphered as we look backwards. And so what we've done, right, if we were here week one, we looked at, at the last years of Mary's life, what those days must have been like, what, what her death might have been like. Last week, we looked at what I would imagine for any mother would be the seminal moment in her life, the, the execution of her son on a Roman cross. And, and the goal last week was to try to learn alongside of Mary in that painful moment, who stood there a couple of feet away from her son as he was crucified, that For Mary and for all of us, for the world and for us individually, peace often comes at the end of a sword. Today, we're going to keep working our way backwards in our life, 21 years worth of steps backwards, actually, to an encounter which I've kind of fallen in love with this week as I've studied it, and it was ridiculously poignant for Mary. And And the question I kept asking myself this week was, why? For one, let me give you, give you some background on, on why it's so poignant and, and why I wonder. 
the story we're going to talk about today is the only story from Jesus' childhood. It's the only one. It's the only story we have of Jesus as a child in all of the scriptures. There are no others. You have the, inf you have the infancy narratives, right? The stories you're familiar, familiar with about Christmas, right? We're going to get to the manger scene on Christmas Eve. But after that scene, there are no other historical records of Jesus until the age of 30, except for this one. Super interesting in your own right, right? Like, you might hear, be here this morning, and, and you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except by him. Or maybe you're here, right? Maybe you're, you're somewhere along the spectrum, the continuity of, of faith, and you're just trying to figure it out a little bit and still asking hard questions. But it doesn't matter where in the pondering venture you are. Just about everyone would agree, right, that Jesus was the most important and most influential person to live in the history of the world. We, we number our, our calendar by him. And so his words as a child, I mean, actually, these are the first recorded words of the most influential person ever lived. They've got to be of some interest to almost everyone. Another reason I think that this moment that we're going to talk about together was very poignant for Mary is it's the last time in the Gospels that we will read about Joseph being alive. After this, you're no longer, we no longer, if you read the Gospels, hear of him. It's presumed that he died sometime between the time of this story and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry some 18 years later. So all of these things, if you were to ponder and, and to reflect and to wonder, it, it would lead you to a singular question. Since this is the only story of Jesus' childhood, why this story? I mean, surely there were lots of others. Why did Mary feel it so important that she would pass this one on to the apostles? And of all the stories that maybe she told Luke when he was interviewing her, right, for this orderly account of Jesus' life that he was writing up, why did Luke go, oh, this is the one that I'm going to put in? Joan and I, for, for my birthday this year, she bought me one of those um, boxes that you put all of your memories, your digital memories in. You know, we, we have memories of our kids back to VHS tapes, and then we, we have all kinds of other things that came along, these little mini discs and these little mini cassettes and things that, you know, you don't even know how to play them. And so uh, we sent them all in on a box Seems like about eight years ago now. We still haven't gotten them back, but uh, hopefully we will be getting them back. But I mean, we have countless hours of video of our children's lives. Book after book, right? Stacks of uh, books of photos. Um, Mary passed this along. That's it. So let's dive in. Luke writes, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, Okay, that's how old this Jesus is now. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to custom. little perspective on the scene, okay? you got to enter the scene. What's going on here is this is an annually required pilgrimage laid out in the book of Exodus, the, the historical accounts of the people of Israel, that for every male Jew, they were to travel to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, to get there, especially from Nazareth, it was not a quick jaunt. It was likely going to take a week. And when they got there, after, dry, after being, you know, on the road for a week, the crowds were crazy. Now, I tried to modernize this up for you today. This is a little bit like uh, our spring break rituals here in New Jersey, especially parent-teacher conference weeks. We go on a caravan, too. Where do we caravan to? The Magic Kingdom, right? We head down in our Dodge caravan down to the Magic Kingdom. 
Now, if you've ever been to the Magic Kingdom at that time of year, and I have, there are just in the Magic Kingdom, not in the other parts, just in the Magic Kingdom, 50 to 60,000 people in the Magic Kingdom. Joan and I went in there one time, and we literally could not get on one ride. Disney was still happy to take my $158, but not one ride. When Mary and Joseph pull into Jerusalem, there were 300,000 pilgrims pulling into Jerusalem with them at that moment, and the city itself was swelling to over 2 million, all of them gathering over these days into the temple courts. So to understand what's about to happen, you have to understand the sheer and utter chaos of, of, of the event and, and the surroundings. So, just like us, you know, the the, pass, the Passhopper Pass has expired. For them, pass, Passover ceremonies have wrapped up. Family gets back into the caravan, and they begin the journey home, which is when Luke records that after the festival is over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. Joan and I have had these conversations. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Okay, contemporize this. You hop in the Dodge Caravan and you start heading home. Somewhere around South Carolina, it dawns on one of you that it is more quiet in the back than it should be. And a discussion ensues, right? So they head back. Now, by the time they get back, right, let's do the math on this. It was one day till they figured it out. By the time they get back, it's two days since they left Jesus behind in the mayhem. Now, as I said, as a husband who has left a kid behind a time or two, and by the way, I once left a neighbor's kid behind, I can only imagine, <laughs> true story, I can only imagine the trouble that Joseph is in at this very moment. I thought to myself, perhaps this is why we never hear of Joseph again, actually. <laughs> Luke goes on, and notice the detail. He says, after three days, couple of things, right? First, he's been missing now for five days. I'm not sure how many of us have lost children for five days. It's terrifying at five minutes, right? This is a human being, Mary. She is a mother that is missing her child for five days. At this point, she's likely a young woman in her mid-20s. And I've got to imagine that she is not thinking good thoughts, right? She's assuming it's not going to be okay. Interestingly enough, as I pondered and reflected this, on this scene this week, right, there was for Mary coming in the days ahead another three-day waiting period. If she actually were to treasure these moments up in her heart, perhaps this was a precursor for her for another three-day wait after Jesus, her son, was crucified, where she too would have assumed the worst Maybe, maybe this day, in those days, would give her some hope in that moment. And maybe, as I pondered and reflected the story this week, maybe this repeated three-day story for Mary, maybe it can remind you and I that in those three-day waits that come into all of our lives, maybe it would give us the courage to trust and to believe and to hope in the three-day moments that come for everyone. And so Luke writes that after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, interest, uh, listening to them and asking them questions. 
Why does Mary recount this? This is the one memory. Okay, number one, right? Uh, just the story, the situation, right? And years later, after her second three-day wait, she's now recounting this long after Jesus' death, right? She treasured and pondered these events, and I'm guessing she would want you and I to know about this concept. There's something I learned that after three days of waiting and trusting, believing, if you would do it even in the worst of circumstances, you'll be surprised at what waits. But here's why I think reason two, this story makes it through out of all the other stories. They get to the temple where Israel's greatest rabbis and teachers hold court among the people. And when they arrive, it is not the chief priests that the people have gathered around to listen, but a 12-year-old boy. The English translation of what Luke wrote in the Greek for what Mary witnessed that day is, is not the best translation. In English, here's how we read it. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. First off, did you catch that? The men and the rabbis and the teachers are asking the 12-year-old questions. He's answering the questions, which is kind of funny in a patriarchal society, right? That word there, they were amazed at his understanding. That word amazed in the Greek in which Luke wrote this, it is the word existeme. It, do, it does not mean, as you would think, that everybody was impressed by him or thought, thought he was smart. That is not what the word meant in the Greek. It means that they were blown out of the water by him. They were in sheer and utter amazement, dumbfounded, stupefied, in awe, breathless, speechless. And it carries with it the meaning of almost being on the edge of their seat in a bit of reverent fear. They were, as they listened to him, as a 12-year-old kid, a little afraid. The gospel writers use the word over and over and over again, and every time that you, they use that word, it's used to describe people's reaction to Jesus' words and his life and his being. I'll give you one, one, one other place you see it. Uh, Mark uses it in a familiar story of Jesus. There's a storm. The disciples are out on a boat, and all of a sudden, they look on the horizon, and they see Jesus walking on the water through the storm out to his disciples, and he gets in the boat with them, and, and Mark writes that when they see him out there, just as you and I would be, they were terrified. And, the, and then here's what he writes. He says, then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. That's the same word that these guys, everybody was at the temple when this 12-year-old was holding court. This is what was going on that, that day. Breathless, awe-inducing, fear-inspiring amazement over the words of this child. And I think it's that kind of, when you understand what the scene was, it's that kind of amazement that led Mary to make sure Luke knew this story. She says, yeah, something was happening this day, maybe for the first time, right? We don't know what Mary's life was like with Jesus. We, we have those stories we talked about last year when they brought Jesus to the temple to present him, and Simeon talks about that sword that was going to pierce her heart, and then we have nothing else. Maybe there were no other signs. Maybe, maybe at this point in her life, Mary, look, she's a human being, right? Maybe she's wondering if the events of the first Christmas were just some kind of awful dream or, or maybe wishful imagination. That day in the temple with that kind of amazement, the story, it's almost like the story picks up again for Mary. After 12 years, she had been doing what every parent does. 
diapers and discipline, discipline, sleepless nights and sick days, acne in adolescence. That was her life. This day, it became amazement again. And it was that kind of amazement that made her remember it. It made her believe again, I would think. And for, for me, and maybe for you this Christmas, I, I think it's that kind of amazement at the words of Jesus that, that you and I have the tendency, I mean, I'll speak for myself, I have the tendency to lose in the familiarity of the Christmas story. That kind of being blown away by it, shock and awe, edge of your seat, borderline fear and trembling, reverence, Maybe we need to rediscover it in order to believe again, too. To be shocked out of the ordinariness of our lives. More specifically, here's what I mean. Adam Hamilton, he wrote a book called Not a Silent Night. He sums this moment up so brilliantly. He writes, sadly, some Christians love to celebrate the Christmas story, and then they skip ahead to the crucifixion and the resurrection. All they seem to know about being a Christian is that, quote, Jesus died on the cross for you and me. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for you and me. That There is a great gift of salvation. That's a central part of Jesus' mission. But it is not all he came to do. Jesus came, he was born, to show us the way, to, to teach us truth and invite us to find life. Don't miss this now. Jesus' words astounded and amazed. There was no miracle going on in that moment. It was the power of his words. They had the power once to change history. They still have the power to change lives. The call to live for God and to love others. They, they call us to be light for the world, to love not only our neighbors, but to love our enemies. Jesus asks us to forgive and to show mercy even to the person, well, at least deserving of it. He tells us to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and welcome the stranger. His sermon on the mount is this reversal of, of, of fortune providing us with a, with a complete new ethic for life. This is why the earliest followers of Jesus were not called Christians. They were called followers of the way. There's a new way to live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Today, so many of us, right, so many of the things that we take for granted in our Western cultures come out of the things that Jesus taught. He calls people to take up their crosses, to deny themselves and follow him. That to be truly great, that you'd have to be a servant of all. He calls his followers to the way of doing unto others as, as they, he would have them do, they would have them do unto you. It's not, it's not just that Jesus died to save you from your sins. He, he lived to show you what it means to be fully human, and we just skip by it all the time. We're not amazed by it anymore. He lived to teach us who God is. He lived to call you to a different way of life. And so at Christmas, we don't just celebrate the, the coming hope of resurrection and salvation. We celebrate the birth of the one who came to teach us his way. This way, a different way to live and to life. It was, a, it was this is why they sat there almost in fear. It was a call to a very radical, different way of living. Those words of Jesus, Mary's 12-year-old son, they amazed those who heard him in the temple. And I would imagine they amazed her. The question is, for all of us that, are, that live very ordinary lives and are so familiar with the story, do they retain the power to amaze you? 
Which leads me to the third reason I think Mary and Luke picked just this one story about, about Jesus' childhood. Clearly, his words amazed, but you can be amazed and still choose a different way, right? You can, you can be amazed, but still go your own way. And Mary, because she's a very real human being, and the mother of Jesus, had that same choice. I mean, if you think it's hard for you to follow Jesus, right? If you think letting his words comfort and convict you is not easy, imagine what it was like for Mary. Have you ever really given this relationship any thought? This is the most, well, dysfunctional isn't the word for it, but strange relationship in the history of all relationships. This was her child. I have a hard time when my kids talk back to me. Imagine, right, if at 12 years old, some of them started telling me, oh, by the way, Dad, I'm your creator and Lord. It's my role to convict you of your sin, and you should do exactly as I say. <laughs> that wouldn't go well for them at the age of 12, right? At the age of 12, they'd be disciplined. At the age of 20, they'd probably be distanced. This is the story of Mary. We just rush by it. And this is her choice. And I think the story is here because at one level or another, it's our story and it's our choice. Let me show, show you what I mean. You, you, you'll see it play itself out right in front of you. Back to the temple, right? They've been looking for him for, for all of these days. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? She goes on. She says, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So to get back to the Greek, right, if the translation of the earlier word amazed was weak, this translation of anxious is downright feeble relative to what they were getting across. In Greek, that word anxious there is odunao, odunao. Mary and Joseph were not astonished and anxious. That comes across like they were impressed, hmm, but worried. That is not what they were feeling. Odunao means they were in anguish and in torment. If some of you know this story, it's the same word that Luke uses in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to describe the rich man's torment in hell. That's what Mary said Jesus had done to her. She is literally saying, son, you have put us through hell. Which brings proper context to what she says next, because in this very real story, what parent wouldn't say this? Why have you treated us this way? Why would, you, why would you do this to us? And again, as, as you get to read the story and understand it more, you begin to see why Mary has it written down. And things are about to get even more provocative. Notice Mary's wording and Jesus' response. Mary says what every parent would say. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Notice Jesus' response. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? This, friends, is a profound moment in the life of Jesus and of Mary, and I would imagine Joseph. Mary says, speaking of Joseph, your father and I, Jesus responds, I think quite purposefully and directly, and for Mary and Joseph, perhaps even a bit off-puttingly, I am in my father's house. For Mary and Joseph, this is perhaps the first time in, in all these years that they've seen it this way again. Some theologians believe that this is recorded because it was right here at the age of 12 when Jesus became aware of who he fully was. 
that God, in a very profound sense, was his father in a way that Joseph was not. It's the first known claim by Jesus in all of the scriptural writings that he is aware that he is different. He's not like every other 12-year-old boy, and he has a special relationship with God that even his mother and father don't enjoy. In fact, this might be interesting for you, based on the faith tradition from which you come, you come, many churches confirm children in their faith at the age of 12, because this is when Jesus confirmed, claimed that God was his father at that age. That's how powerful this moment is. Don't rush by it. And so how do you respond to that when your son says something like that to you? It's a dramatic story, and it's all playing itself out in the public square. There are massive crowds watching this all go down. This is why I love what Luke writes. He goes, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. I think when we read these stories, because of their familiarity, we lose all of their humanity. We think Mary and Joseph, oh, they always understood it. Yes, 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 Mary was rejoicing from day one. They totally understood how it was all going to go down. But Mary would want you to know. I want to repeat that. This Christmas, Mary would want you to know that she didn't. She didn't always get it. For every one of us that don't always get it, she didn't always get it. And she didn't get this scene. I'm guessing she didn't enjoy this scene. And here's how I know that. Because the only way Luke would have known both this story and her feelings at that moment were if she told him. That's the only way this gets here. She knew what Luke was doing. Luke had come to her likely and said, I'm writing a very detailed account, the most detailed account of the life of your son, I want to hear the story. I mean, this is an amazing, I mean, you don't make, this is why you can trust that the Gospels are real. This would not be made up. Why? Because Mary's being dismissive of herself. She didn't feign greatness. Oh, I knew the whole time. I was just so wonderfully obedient. She boasts of her ignorance and her misunderstanding and her humanity. It's funny, right? They leave the temple that day like they did 12 years earlier when Simeon had pronounced this thing about a sword piercing her heart. They leave for a second time, and they, they a second time travel a week home. And in that week, just like the first time, I guess they were a bit confused. They're still, I mean, I'd still be angry about the whole way, the whole way, how he treated me and what he said to me in front of everybody, maybe a little bit hurt. And here's incrementally why, because there was a cultural factor at play in the story you and I don't even know about. We live in a very different world than, than the world where these events played out. We live in a Western culture where, where individual rights are supreme, individual rights dominate. Our American society, it consists of laws designed to protect the rights, our rights. Our individual rights are paramount. They, they are overarching. Everything is about me and my rights. But it was not this way in the ancient Jewish societies. That was a culture of duty and honor. In the West, we, 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 ask, we ask ourselves all, all the time, what do I want to do with my life? What are my rights in this situation? In the culture of Jesus' day, the question on the street was, how ought I behave in light of my status? What is my duty given the situation I find myself in? You know some of this. 
The fifth of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and your mother. What would honoring one's parents mean to Jesus and to Mary and to Joseph? It gets a little confusing, wouldn't it? Because honor in the Judaism of the time was the claim that, that the parents, Joseph and Mary, it was a claim they had on Jesus to display respect for them in private and public places. As parents love and care for children, so children were to honor them for, for their love and care. In particular, as sons, including Jesus, matured. He had an expectation, a cultural expectation, right? To treat his parents in a way that neither humiliated nor impoverished them. What's at play here in the temple when Jesus is 12 is this collision between the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and the fifth commandment regarding honor of parents. Because quite publicly, Jesus is prioritizing doing what God wants him to do over what his parents wanted him to do, and he was doing it in public. And I would imagine for Mary and Joseph, painfully so. This is her son. And at this moment, it's becoming incrementally clear in a way that I imagine she is not quite comfortable with yet. This is also her Lord. This is a singular relationship in the history of time. There's no other like it. And it's in this cultural context with this clash of commandments that I think Mary wanted Luke to understand it all when she told him to conclude with this. It's almost like she adds this on. Now when you understand the cultural context, understand why Mary said, oh, I need you to understand one more thing. Then after all this happened, he went down to Nazareth with us and he was obedient. Interesting, right, how that got added on. It wasn't that Jesus is a disobedient child, Jesus was Mary's honorable son, but Jesus was also her Lord, and being her Lord was the priority. Luke concludes, and here it is again, but his mother, his mother treasured all these things in her heart, there it is again, because at the moment it's not making a lot of sense, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew in wisdom. Do you know what that meant? It means Jesus was figuring it out. Mary, too, as she treasured these things up in her heart, Mary is trying to figure it out. I think this day would come back to her as, as a distinct memory, this clash of commandments and culture, in another similar story. It, it happened about 20 years after this story. The whole family went to, you know, it was a family wedding, apparently, and they went to a wedding in the city of Cana, another, by the way, a very public event where Mary would finally come to a defining conclusion about navigating the relationship with Jesus, her son, and Jesus, her Lord. Because Mary would soon discover at that wedding, obeying the first commandment about honoring God above everything else was going to mean for her that she would need to surrender her honor. Quite publicly, in an honor-based society, she would publicly surrender her honor by following her own son by becoming obedient even to her own child. Some of you know the story. Jesus' mother and his disciples are invited to this wedding at Cana. It was, it was a city just like Nazareth. Nazareth was just a nothing city. On most maps of the day, it's not even included. Cana was just a backwater city to about eight miles north of Nazareth. We don't know who was being married that day, but most people believe it was likely somebody in Mary's family, a, a relative. Now, weddings in the day of Jesus were very different than ours, 
Fathers, if you think paying for a four-hour party for your daughter is, is bad now, a wedding in Jesus' day could go on for up to a week, day after day after day. Now, I have planned a four-hour party for my daughter that is married. I know what goes into it. The time and the money and the money and the money. Did I mention the money? I... And so in Cana... It was no different. And what was about to happen is, is ju- then is just what would, if you've ever thrown a, 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 a party, you know. I mean, I, look, I know pride cometh before the fall, and I know it's a, the, it's, it's a, a sin. But, you know, as, as the father that's putting this on, you take some pride in, the, in what you're doing, right, in the event you're throwing for your daughter. And so I tried to contemporize the story. It, what happens here is, is kind of like if you came to my daughter's wedding and the servers came up to your table and said, well, I'm sorry to inform you, but we've run out of the beef and the chicken. For that matter, we've also run out of the fish. But don't worry, we pulled some leftover appetizers down from cocktail hour. I mean, if that happened, right, I'd be mortified. It'd be embarrassing. Right? Like, really? This is exactly what's going on at this wedding in Cana. This is a very honor-based society, right? And according to rabbinic records, the groom is under an honor code to provide plenty of food and drink for his guests. Mary detects, this is her family, she detects that they've run out of wine. Why she's concerned, it's not clear, but, but likely this is her family, and her family's honor is a little bit at risk. And she's kind of got Jesus a little bit of the ace in the hole, right? And so here's how John records it. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to, wedding, to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, you know, they don't have any more wine. Mary was doing what mothers do, right? This had the potential for her and her family to have embarrassment written all over it, and she comes to her son with... We don't know what she wanted him to do, right? She doesn't say, and so could you turn water into wine? Could you do a miracle? She just kind of comes to Jesus and goes, you know, mm, I wonder what it would be like to have some more wine here. <laughs> she comes with an expectation. She's his mother that he's going to do something that will do anything, right? Honors at stake. We don't know what she expected from Jesus other than than because she's his mother, that when in asking him to do this, he has some obligation to do something. And Jesus responds in an interesting way. He goes, woman, why do you involve me? In other words, mother, which the word in Greek here translated as woman can, can mean, if you remember what Jesus is on the cross, that's what the word he uses to, to show Mary that John will be taking care of him. Woman, this is your son. But it is a bit distancing. Why, why, woman, why are you involving me in your plans? One scholar I read this week said Jesus was responding with, quote, a polite request to refrain from interference and to leave the whole matter to him. It's almost as if Mary said, or Jesus said, Mom, I know you have plans and worries about this, and as my mother, I know I owe you the honor of following those. But he goes on, my hour has not yet come. In the Gospel of John, guys, whenever Jesus uses the word, my hour, and he does it often, he's talking about being glorified by being crucified. Mary didn't have those plans for Jesus. 
She had other plans. But Jesus knew it. And he also knew that his father had plans for him. And in that moment, like that moment 20 years earlier in the temple, Jesus was making a very public declaration that I will not be following your plans. I will be following my father's. In a very real sense, Jesus was elevating his ways over her ways, his understanding over her understanding, his will over hers. Jesus was teaching his mom what he would go on to teach his disciples. What I believe Mary hopes he teaches us, that he, she would want us to understand is why she told these stories, as embarrassing culturally as they might have been to her. Jesus would explain it to his disciples uh, this way. The Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. That's the quote, because he was calling God his father and equating himself with God. And so Jesus says to them, Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment now to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What Jesus was explaining to his followers then and to his mother at the wedding was, I know you have plans for me. I know you have things that you want me to do for you, but you have to understand, I only do one thing. I only do, could do whatever I want, but I only do what my Father tells me to do. And to us, even more amazingly, to his mother, he says, so honor me as you would God. Did you catch the last line? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. How do you love and honor the Son? John would go on to record Jesus saying it over and over and over again. If you love me, keep my commands. On that day, the day I'll come for you, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. He would go on to say, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. That day at the age of 12 in the temple, and some 20 years later at the wedding in Cana, what is Jesus doing? He's asking his mother to surrender to him, to learn from him, to listen to him, to follow him. Mary would only receive the honor that she really was in pursuit of in coming to honor her son first. This is the culmination of all this treasuring and pondering and wonder. This is the culmination of all those conversations she and Joseph had with Gabriel. This is the culmination of what she heard from the angels as they sung to the shepherds, what the wise men had told her in her home, what, what her cousin Elizabeth had related to her, what Simeon had sung over in the temple, what Anna had prophesied. And it was at this moment, I believe at least, that Mary admitted she didn't get it at the temple when she was 12. Remember, she didn't get it. But it was at this moment at the wedding when Jesus directly confronts her. Mary has a choice to make. Her honor as the parent or his as her Lord. And if you think it's hard to make Jesus your Lord, put yourself in the position of Mary, his mother, in a public place. And I have never understood, until I understood this story at this level, I have never understood how powerful Mary's words in response to Jesus' claim to her were. Do you know what she said next? 
His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Ridiculously powerful words of surrender and of honor and privilege and power and rights surrendered to her son. She yields to him in this moment, maybe for the first moment in full understanding as her Lord. It took Mary 30 years to get to this place. Had she had a mental ascendance to the story of Jesus? Of course she did. She was there at the manger. She understood a lot of it. But that day at Cana, in the wedding, publicly, she got it. It went into her heart. She yielded her way and her life and her heart to her son turned her king. Friends, that's the story of Christmas. And so how about you? I kept asking myself this week, how about me? Are you, as I'm often guilty of, right, have you rushed from the story of the manger to the story of the cross and let, left out the words of Jesus that left everybody in, in fearful amazement? Do you know the story but not that way? Do you demand, even in light of Jesus' claims, to still do it your way? I know he has his way, but I have my way. And if I could just get him to do what I want. The wedding story at Cana is so powerful. There, there is enough in that story for a sermon series, but I'll close with this last thought. Here's Mary's response. Do whatever he tells you. When she said it, it unlocked the door to Jesus' first, first miracle. Do not minimize Mary's role in Jesus' first miracle. She directed the servants to do what he told them to do. She directed the servants to obey Jesus. And he would go on to convert six 30-gallon jars of water into the best wine served at the wedding. The groom and his family were spared the, the shame and the embarrassment, and Jesus revealed his glory. In fact, you know, John actually doesn't call this a miracle. He calls it a sign. He says, this is a sign. It's what the, the angel said to the shepherds. This will be a sign unto you something that you should reflect on and treasure and ponder and contemplate. And that sign was triggered when Mary said, the miracle was triggered when Mary said, do whatever he tells you to do. One writer summed it up this way, the sign was what tr was triggered when Mary said, do whatever he tells you. We forget her role here. Jesus did not perform the miracle become sign, the water become wine, until Mary directed the servants to do whatever Jesus said. Mary meddled in Jesus' business. Jesus revealed to her that he did only what the Father told him to do and only when the Father wanted it done. And Mary chose to trust the words of her son. And by trusting Jesus, she unlocked the doors to a mighty miracle. But Mary first had to surrender her own honor to her own son. And this Christmas, this sign echoes across the centuries. When you ponder it this week, ask yourself, what miracle might be triggered in your life if you would surrender to her son too? If you would surrender to her son too. Let's stand and close in song.